When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Maybe it's just that you don't know how to use social courtesy. Oh, that's old-fashioned. Watch how Lizzie Post and Dan Post Senate act as host and hostess. They know that courtesy means showing respect, thinking of the other person, real friendliness. Hello. And welcome to Awesome Etiquette. Where we explore modern etiquette through the lens of consideration, respect, and honesty. On today's show, we take your etiquette questions on breaking up with your hair. Awesome Etiquette gets support from StoryWorth. There are some stories about your mom's life that you truly never get tired of hearing. From hilarious to heartfelt, tear-jerking to plot-twisting, mom's retelling of the events always brings a bit of joy. Just in time for Mother's Day... We here at Awesome Etiquette found the perfect gift that can capture all of your mom's stories for your family forever. It's called StoryWorth. StoryWorth helps you preserve precious memories and stories from your mom or a mother figure in your life for years to come. Here's how it works. Each week, StoryWorth emails your loved one a thought-provoking question that you get to help pick. What was your first job? Who was your first crush? (laughs) StoryWorth makes the writing process a breeze. All your loved one needs to do is to respond to the email prompt with a story. Long or short, it doesn't matter. I did this with my mom and it was really, really rewarding. You'll be emailed a copy of your loved one's responses as they're submitted over the course of the year. You'll get to enjoy their retelling of the stories, some you probably already know, or maybe the ones that you're surprised by you haven't heard before. (laughs) After that year of fun discovery and reminiscing, StoryWorth compiles your loved one's stories and photos into a beautiful keepsake hardcover book that you'll be able to share and revisit for generations to come. You can even keep a copy of the book for yourself. Give all the moms in your life a unique, heartfelt gift that you all will cherish for years. Story Worth. Right now, save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com slash manners. That's storyworth, S-T-O-R-Y-W-O-R-T-H dot com slash manners. It's manners with an S to save $10 on your first purchase. And now back to our show stylist, setting boundaries during the grieving process, ending evenings out with friends, and bringing up your budget when RSVPing to a salon day. Plus, your most excellent feedback, an etiquette salute, and a postscript segment on how to bungle a dinner party from the 1922 edition of Etiquette. Coming up. Awesome Etiquette comes to you from the studios of Vermont Public Radio and is proud to be produced in Burlington, Vermont by the Emily Post Institute. I'm Lizzie Post. And I'm Dan Post-Senning. And I am rocking it in the etiquette world at home. Etiquette gold stars all around. (laughs) 
<laughs> I'm feeling braggy. Um, Let's no, hear it. I got to say, huge accomplishment on Sunday. Kayla and I cleaned our house top to bottom, inside and out, dusted baseboards. We got dust that had accumulated from the, the tops of the doorway. I mean, we went for it. And this has been a long time coming. We had kind of a difficult end of summer and fall when it came to our schedules, our motivational levels. And anyone who's been listening to this show for a long time has heard me occasionally mention, we're trying a new thing. (laughs) Getting it buttoned up for winter, are you? Yeah. Mostly just, I am not a clean person. My cousin knows this well from sharing an office with me. Um, And I am desperately always searching for the balance, the thing, the trick, whatever it is that's going to gonna make the house flow so that any night of the week you could feel comfortable inviting friends over last minute just so that you can walk in and feel like you're walking into a space that's ready to receive you, that's like ready to be used. That's my goal in life. Figuring out how to make that happen with roommates and schedules and dogs and everything is tough. So how do you get there? So I I literally did what I wrote in that first roommate book. Can I jump in? Because it's my favorite part. The three C's. Tell me what I did. Go for it. Um, I'm guessing that there was some communication. There was numerous times, yes. That there was some compromise. Yeah, uh, yes. And that there has also been some commitment that's to how you're going to move that's forward. That's where all summer long you've heard me fail. We've tried different things. We tried making it a competition with rewards. That's a different C. Yep. We tried assigning specific tasks to each other. That a we chore were, wheel. Yeah, exactly. Another that we were C. Just, and stuff that like wouldn't change. It was just like, you vacuum, I'll always do the dishes. Sure, okay. We tried bare minimums, which was like, Okay, as long as the counters and the the cookware is available to be used, and when you get up from the couch, you should reset it. The pillows shouldn't be on the floor, you know what I mean? We tried bare minimums of that, and kind of nothing worked until what we finally did is we came up with a list of everything that needed to get done for the house to be cleaned. And then we came up with a second list of like things that needed to be done less often but still needed to happen, like the dusting and the mopping, which I hate both of them so much. Okay. And so then what we did is we chose dates where our schedules matched up and we could make a commitment because what had happened is we had chosen the dates and like we lined up like six dates coming up over the next six months for when all this cleaning was going to happen. And then we would get to the day and we would have planned our days differently and our schedules weren't lining up to have overlapping cleaning. The reason we decided we needed to do the cleaning together, that had to happen, was because it wasn't happening otherwise. I needed the motivation of another person. I think that it helped Kayla having someone else saying all the different things that we needed to get done. I think that helped motivate her. I'll let her speak for herself. But... It was funny how we finally thought we had it down. We had both committed to it. And yet there was still another element we needed to put into place. And that was agreeing on a time. So last Wednesday, we agreed on Sunday morning after our coffee. We did that. And the house is so clean. I'm so excited. I had impromptu guests over last night. Do you walk through the door and just go, ah. Yes. Every time. Oh, my gosh. Every time. I actually go outside and walk back in just to experience it again. It's taken a while to get there, and we now know that the trick for us is both committing to a day and a time, and now we have the list of what needs to get done. And it's so nice to have this under our belt and going successfully now. 
<laughs> Communication, compromise, compromise, commitment, the commitment. three C's. It was my favorite tip for living with others <laughs> from that first book that you wrote. It was one of the, the, the takeaways where I said to myself, oh, this is – I've got not, a thing or two that I'm going to walk away from here. It's not easy. We had to keep recommitting. We had to keep retrying until we got it right. And that took us six months. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. Gold Etiquette Stars. <laughs> Do you think we should answer some other people's etiquette problems? <laughs> I think we should give it a try. All right. Let's do it. Awesome Etiquette is here to answer your questions on how to behave. And if you have a question for us, you can email it to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. Leave us a voicemail at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. Or hit us up on Twitter and Facebook. Just use the hashtag Awesome Etiquette so we know you want your question on the show. Our first question is about breaking up, which can be hard to do. Hi, I've heard Lizzie and Daniel on NPR's Dinner Party Download, and I thought they might be able to help me on this one. Not sure if you've answered this before, but it's a tricky one for me. I've been friends with my hairdresser for about 25 years, even casually, outside of hairdressing. I haven't had my hair done in 11 months because I really hated it the last time she did it. Oh, no. My brother is complaining about my gray temples. (laughs) How can I break up with my hairdresser without hurting her feelings? Thank you for any thoughts you might have. Wink, Mara. Mora, oh, hold the phone. I have a question. 25 years and you haven't been in 11 months. <laughs> I'm thinking your hairdresser has noticed at this point. Like, do you think maybe? There I might... mean, some people only go once a year. That's true. That had been one of my first, first thoughts. First thoughts, okay. I had also been thinking about you and I was saying, how how long does, does the... one go? What would the maximum be? But, you yeah, know, this this might be a, a moot point. This question might be settled already. Dan's saying that because I say I put my natural blonde back in <laughs> every six to eight weeks. Um, I want to say that I would advise – Right off the bat, talk to your stylist. Everything I have learned from my stylist, who I've been seeing every six to eight weeks for the past 15 years, is that if anything is wrong, if there is any dislike of what she has done, she wants to know about it. And she has two reasons for wanting to know about it. Number one is, well, let's just say it, like selfish. I'm a walking advertisement for her. She has said this to me. She's like, if you don't have good hair, I don't have good business. And if I've gotten it off, if it doesn't feel right, if you're just wanting to try something different and that different didn't work out, let's get you to a place you feel comfortable. She goes, because, and this is the the feel-good moment, she actually really cares that I like the hairstyle I have. She knows what kind of confidence it brings. She knows sometimes that it's about ease and function, and she wants me to have those things. And so she says, if there's anything ever wrong, please let me know immediately. I like it. What's occurring to me as I'm hearing you talk is this is a professional relationship. And there's all kinds of reasons why you want that communication to be good. And elements of good communication are often that it's – there's a certain amount of candor. That, that truth has to be as, – as we talk True. about all the time, honesty is a fundamental principle of good etiquette and truth in business relationships often in the form of candor. And that, that doesn't mean you have to be rough or difficult or, right. listen, you did a terrible job. I'm never going to see you again. But there is a, a kind truth, a benevolent truth that someone's going to want to know. And even if it's not about repairing the relationship or making it better, yeah. that parting well is important, yes. how we conclude things, how we wrap things up, even if it – is a moment where you're going to move on. 
people can handle a no. Yeah. Sometimes it's really nice to acknowledge the time that's been spent together. And I like the way, even though we're talking right now about a professional relationship, the question asker acknowledges there's a personal relationship here also and paying some attention to that and how you maintain that relationship well, even though you might be ending this professional relationship, I think is where the right level of kindness in that benevolent truth is an important dosage to get right. Totally. And I want to get to some sample language about ending the relationship if you really want to end it. But before I go there, I also want to give some sample language about how to. you've been 11 months without seeing someone that you, I'm guessing usually see a little more frequently than that, maybe. Um, if we're talking about gray hair and yeah. temples showing, I'm guessing there's a little upkeep that probably happens more than once a year. It's okay for you to reach back out and still say that the reason you stayed away was because you had a bad cut and you're sorry that you hadn't brought it up earlier. But you'd love to address it. And could we do something different this time? And that would be perfectly appropriate. In the future, if you get that bad cut and now you have more confidence to bring it up, one of the nice things is just to be able to say right away so that you're not walking around with hair you don't like. You know, Kelly, I have to admit this cut and color really didn't do it for me. Can we troubleshoot it? Can we try something a little different? Stylists are usually very good about giving you a kind of like a redo or a makeup or something to try to fix what you're not loving about it. And it is a subjective thing. They are used to having to work a little bit to get it right. One of the things a friend of mine just reminded me of is to not assume that the other person can't handle criticism or just a, an issue at all. By not doing anything or by leaving it the first bad haircut or bad color, you're assuming the other person couldn't handle the idea that their cut or color wasn't good. And that's just not true of most people. Most people can handle a little bit of critique or a little bit of this didn't work for me. So have faith that that other person has the skill to be able to handle their end of dealing with this. If you really do want to walk away, have confidence in doing it. Stylists are used to people changing up, wanting a new salon, a new venue. Sometimes it has nothing to do with the person. It's it's easier for me to drive to this place. It, it's amazing the things that, that wind up getting us to switch in the end. So it is absolutely fine. You don't have to have a breakup conversation with your stylist. If you do run into them or they do call saying, hey, where have you been? You can say, you know, I decided to try someone new. You could also let them know that if you really wanted to. Say, hey, Kel, I'm going to go try a different salon next month. Maybe I'll be back. And that's it. But give it some positivity. Give it a little confidence. And I think you'll find it's a lot easier than you're expecting. I think those are really good things to keep in mind. People can handle no's and people can handle you moving on. Yeah. I thought you also had a really good idea for leaving the professional relationship aside. That's handled well. How do you keep that friendship intact if that's the part of this relationship that you care about moving forward? I think you say that. You say, I'm deciding I want to try another salon, but I really want to make sure we stay in touch. You know, if I called you up for coffee, would you would you still be wanting to go? Something like that. Just inviting the other person to participate in the friendship beyond the professional relationship. Or letting them know that that's your intent or your desire is absolutely, I think, a good way to go. I like it. Breaking up is hard to do. We hope that this advice helps and that it's a little easier in the future. For the unusual in coiffures, Givet is your man, ladies, if you live in the San Francisco area. At his salon in San Mateo, a noted hairstylist feathers his nest with original ideas, like putting feathers on my lady's hairdo and calling it the parakeet. Is this the spot to say it's mighty purdy? Our next question is a tough one, and it's called Still Grieving. 
Hi, Lizzie and Dan. Thank you so much for your podcast. It has gotten me through some pickles in life. I lost my husband to cancer last month. It's been a difficult journey, but I'm grateful for all of the wonderful people that have surrounded me with love. Within the same week after my husband's life celebration, I received emails from his parents and more recently extended family asking for items that belong to my husband. Their requests range from material things to sentimental things. My question is, how much time should a person wait until they ask for someone's belongings? I felt it to be too soon for his family to ask, and frankly, I felt they should not have asked for items at all and rather waited for me to offer them. I did respond to their emails and let them know that I was not ready to deal with this just yet. I could really use your advice here, as I have never lost someone so close to me. I, personally, would never think to ask for a loved one's belongings after their passing. It would feel rude and completely insensitive to me. Is it okay for them to ask, or is it rude? Please help. Still grieving. Still grieving, we are so sorry to hear of your loss, and I am so glad to hear that you are surrounded by love and support. I will go out on a limb and just say that I I agree with you. Sorting through and handling all of a loved one's belongings is part of the grieving process, and different folks are able to or want to handle that in different ways. But whenever possible, it should be the person closest to the deceased who is... I would say deciding how to handle their belongings. And these are not belongings that we're talking about um, being addressed in a will or something that would need to be discussed legally and might even have time parameters on it. We're talking about the at-home possessions. And, And some of those will be included in a will, so you have to be a little careful. But we're talking about the everyday effects of a person's life, the clothing, the... Desk set. Yeah, the the hobby materials, some of which may be included in their thoughts about how they'd like their possessions to be distributed after they pass. But I just want to make that clear that we're talking about personal items that are probably in uh, Still Grieving's home. And I agree with you that especially considering that this isn't like uh, parents dealing with the, the second of their parents passing and now you're closing up a home and taking everything out of it, you're dealing with items that someone still lives with. And to me, that deserves some time and it, it should be the person who lives with those items who is deciding when it's time to, to start processing them and, and moving them out to various folks or or moving them on to their next destination. There are times where someone is holding off doing that for too long and a family is becoming concerned. I do not think that one month in anyone should be really concerned about this. As you said, his life celebration has only just happened and they were calling the same week of that celebration. I think that is too soon. I want to encourage you to give your relatives the benefit of the doubt. When someone passes, it is so easy for us to want something to hold on to of theirs, something that connects us to them, whether it's the fishing gear or a belt or a piece of jewelry or a vanity table. I mean, it's amazing what things wind up reminding us of a person. So often it's the the personal connection more than the the value, the material value of the item that, that, that can make it feel important. And I think sometimes people are trying to communicate that 
they yes. want to share that this this would be very meaningful to me. I feel very connected in these ways. And Still Grieving mentions sentimental items. People have been asking for those things. And so one of the things that I like to advise in this situation is to just respectfully set your boundary and recognize that people are trying to communicate to you their hopes for staying connected to your husband or your late husband, excuse me. And I I think that the more that you can recognize that when you respond to them but set your boundary, the better off you'll be. So you might say something like, Tim, I understand your concerns about Brian's fishing gear. However, I'm not yet ready to parse through his belongings. When I am ready, I will definitely be in touch. But until then, I ask that you understand that I have heard you and that as soon as I'm ready, I will reach out. Something like that so that you're validating, but that you're also letting them know the plan of action. And you should keep keep a list. Keep track. There might be five different people who want that fishing gear, you know, but you can deal with that when you're ready and just say, I'm keeping a list of what people have already asked for, but I'm also asking that people hold off asking me for things until a later date or until I reach out. That's giving them a clear set of directions to follow for moving forward with this topic. Still grieving. We really hope that helps and that your family can respect your replies and give you the breathing room that you need to move forward comfortably as you make these decisions. And that when the moment is right, that you feel good about reaching back out to these people and including them and and doing your best to be sure that everybody continues to feel connected to your late husband. Lizzie and I both wish you the best in this difficult time. Our next question is titled, Ready for Bed. Dear Lizzie and Dan, my very good friend and neighbor has a frustrating habit of ordering a beverage, coffee or beer, when we are out to eat as a group. He with his wife and my boyfriend with me. The problem is he always seems to do it after the meal is clearly over. The plates are cleared. It's time for the check. And he will order a drink. This is when no one else gets a drink or dessert or anything, and then everyone has to sit there while he sips it at a glacial pace. It feels like at least 30 minutes that this adds to the evening. On several occasions, this has happened on a weeknight, when we all go out spontaneously but have to be at work the next morning. His wife and I will be sitting there yawning, and he's oblivious. I think the reason he does it is that he works really hard at a stressful job and gets very few social meals. But it is so frustrating for me when my job involves very early mornings. How can I politely address this? Or do I have to just sit and wait? Thank you for your input. Ready for bed. There was a follow-up email. I loved the follow-up email. I have to follow up to this question. On the way home, his wife and I rode together because he had to go back to work, and I commented on how tired I was, and she agreed. And then she said that she has brought up this issue with him in the past, and he doesn't really understand that it's an issue. She asked that I mention it to him. I'm not sure how to go about that. 
Okay, so I know Halloween's over. This is a scary nightmare for me. I know it is. I could just see. I, I chose this question because I knew this would drive you nuts. <laughs> like feeling trapped at a table. I'm ready for bed too. My <laughs> underlying antisocial tendencies and behaviors just start to charge to the surface in these moments where I just think to myself, can we all just go home and continue with our lives? I don't want to be with people anymore. Um, <laughs> This is really rude. It's bad behavior, first of all. I just want to It's annoying behavior. It's annoying. I wouldn't call it bad, but I would say annoying because it's not about being aware of the rest of the players. Exactly. And there, there is a, a certain etiquette. If I was thinking about our top 10 dining tips that says you pace your meal with other people, that if you're an incredibly fast eater, you don't just sit there tapping your fingers while other people finish <laughs> their meals. You also make an effort to keep up if you're a slower eater. And this is a pacing problem. This is someone not recognizing the signals or the cues that the evening is over. The queen has rules about this, as we learned. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I also agree that from an etiquette perspective, it is difficult to address. It's hard to address someone else's bad behavior, particularly when it's rooted in, as I suspect it is in this instance, someone taking pleasure in your company and the yes. experience that you're all sharing, not wanting it to end, wanting to hang on and hold on and, and live in this moment just a little longer. And you even have sympathy for the person because look at Ready for Bed. They are actually looking at the situation and saying, this person works a lot. This is probably their only chance to do this. I mean, talk about Ready for Bed having good etiquette awareness. Truly. Um, I, I do think that this is one of those situations where you set yourself up early as much and as best you can, that you talk about your desire to be home at a certain time, when you accept the invitation, when the meal begins, that you start to frame the, the ending of that meal in a way that lets you push a little harder when the check arrives. And I think it's difficult to actually point out the bad behavior. I think so, too. I think it's difficult to to find the language that says, I'd really rather you didn't order that right now. Right. It's tough. I think you set it up as early and often and that you maybe even through a series of one or two occurrences of this, you start to escalate your response mm-hmm. that maybe you start to set up that end a little firmer that it, it happens one time. You mentioned the next time that last time I noticed we lingered past and I got home really late. I'm going to make an effort to be out the door at nine o'clock, nine three, whatever it is that that lets you opt for at some point asking to pay your share of the check and and well, leave, which always... is extreme. But I think if you set it up well, you can do it. I think so, too. And I think that's actually not hard to set up well. First of all, I do want to get back to one issue that we didn't discuss. The friend asking for oh, you I want to, to get monitor there too. her husband's behavior. Not forgotten. Like, can we just jump into that? What do you think? I think that maybe opens the door to actually have a talk with this other person. You might be able to really get into it with them and say, this has happened a few times. I wanted to talk to you about it. I can't find the language for that. Me, sample script girl, was not able to to come up with something that felt comfortable for that. Because essentially you're, you're telling someone that something they enjoy bothers you and infringes on your needs for the evening when I think it's up to you to figure out how to make your needs work for the evening. And because there are solutions for that that Dan has alluded to, I think we don't have to go towards your behavior in this moment is annoying. And I think the more you can avoid going there, the better. But I think you do have to set it up clearly in the beginning. Like I would say something like, you know, I really love having dinner with you guys, but we just can't do it where we're coming home and it's 10 o'clock at night on a Thursday. I would love to say, let's go to dinner. 
Dan and I have to be out by, you know, 9 p.m. And so I'm going to bring cash. If you guys want to stay longer, linger, have drinks, by all means, go for it. But I'm going to bring enough to pay our fair share of the meal and have us head out the door so we can get to bed on time. And I think that allows someone else to do what they're doing and allows you to control what you need in the situation. But you still get to get together and have a good time. And you're not telling them, in order to have a good time, I need you to change. Because I think that makes it harder to have a good time next time. Maybe. So here's where the language starts to matter. I I don't think I would tell someone that their behavior was annoying. Yeah. But I do think I might say something like, last time we stayed for drinks after and use that royal we. We did. Say, we found ourselves getting home later and later. We've really got to be out the door. So could we agree not to do drinks at the end of the – or let's plan on not doing drinks after the meal tonight. I like let's plan on not doing drinks after the meal tonight. Great, great language. What I'm noticing here is that Almost every answer that we give comes back to you try to head this one off as early as possible. That addressing it in the moment is really difficult. I think that if that moment does start to happen, the best thing that you can do is make the decision yours and one that you're making personally where you're not commenting on their behavior. And if it did happen in the moment, let's just say it was so impromptu, you forgot to make the request. As the meal ends or as that person orders that final drink, I might say, hey, We've really got to get going. You guys stay and enjoy the coffee. We're going to plunk down our cash and, you know, you think 35 will cover it for the night? Okay, great. Enjoy. (laughs) Like, you know. And it is. It's a minor rudeness to excuse yourself from a meal like that, to not leave with everyone together. But if if one person is lingering on and on and that is an easier move to make if you set yourself up, but you've got to do what you got to do. Ready for bed. We hope you can reclaim your bedtime. In this picture, we've looked at a few problems of the kind you and your friends run into every day. Remember what those problems of friendship are? They involve loyalty, good manners, and dependability. Our next question is a Facebook question. It comes from Ruth. Ruth asks, is there a polite way to ask someone if they will be paying for something? My mother-in-law has invited me to a spa day with her. If she is not paying, I don't have it in the budget to go. In the past, it has gone both ways. Ruth, there is, and it all comes in your response to her initial invite. You could try saying something like, Mom, I would absolutely love to. Let me know what you're thinking in terms of dates and treatments, and I can see if I've got it in the schedule and budget, or even just in the budget. Or you could say, I would love to. I can only budget to join you for a mani-pedi, but I would love to do that with you. You might say something like, I would love to, but I need to choose treatments carefully. I can only commit to 150 for the day. Mom, that sounds so wonderful. I don't have the budget for a spa day, but would you like to choose a different day where we could spend some time together, cook something, go for a walk? I love any of these options because you're in the clear no matter what. If mom offers to pay the difference or cover everything, great. If she decides to acknowledge that, you know, you don't have the budget, she doesn't have the budget to cover you, then you can do something else together. You're focusing on the wonderfulness of the invitation, the loveliness of spending time together, but identifying that budget is where you might have to choose something different to do together or give her the opportunity to offer to pay. And if she doesn't offer to pay, there's no awkwardness about that. You're not saying directly to her, well, I can only do it if you can pay. I love the clarity and the candor 
that this type of answer brings. And I also love the the way that you're delivering it with an emphasis on enjoying the time together and responding to that invitation and responding to that particular offer with enthusiasm. I think that that enthusiasm and that excitement about the relationship and other ways to connect really make it easy to bring more clarity to the question of the decision-making around budget. I love it. No matter what, I really hope that you and your mother-in-law are able to get together and enjoy the time that you can spend together. Thank you for sending your questions. They truly are the beating heart of this show. You can send updates and comments on the answers we give to Awesome Etiquette at emilypost.com or leave us a message at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. Or hit us up on Twitter or Facebook. Just use the hashtag Awesome Etiquette so that we know you want your question on the show. Each week, we like to hear your thoughts about the questions we answer and the topics we cover. And this week, the first piece of feedback that we have is titled, Been There, Done That. Been There, Done That has some reflections on our hospital visit advice from the other week. Dan and Lizzie, thanks so much for your podcast. It is such a voice of reason in these sometimes not-so-reasonable days. Following up on your episode a few weeks back on hospital visits, I would like to offer a few additional suggestions. First, don't assume that there is one set of visitation rules for the whole hospital. Units such as ICUs, etc. will often have shorter visiting hours and will even limit the number of people allowed in the patient's room at any given time. You want to make sure you check about the specific part of the hospital you're going to be visiting before you go. Second, if possible, it helps to have one designated family member who can help coordinate visitors on behalf of the patient. That way, there can be shifts of visitors through the day and not a sudden onslaught. It helps the patient be prepared, if possible, for visitors and not to be overwhelmed by a room full of visitors or the pressure of knowing that there are visitors waiting in line to see them. It can also help the caretaker family members to perhaps schedule visitors to sit with their patients so they can run an errand, go out for a meal, etc., and know that their patient won't be alone during that time. Also, keep in mind that fresh flowers, plants, etc. can be prohibited in certain units, such as the ICU and transplant units. So again, be mindful and check with the hospital or a designated family member who can help steer you in the right direction. Finally, I think you may have shared this advice before, but please remind your listeners of the ring theory. When you are the patient or immediate family member of someone in the midst of a health crisis, it is exhausting and overwhelming to have people constantly share how devastated they are by what's happening to you. Signs of support and even empathy are wonderful, but it would be immensely helpful if they would find someone in their own ring or an outer ring to express this to. Remember, you want to comfort in and express out. (laughs) Best regards, been there, done that. I really like this ring theory idea, and I I, I appreciate hearing about it. We have a link to an L.A. Times story about this ring theory, and we're going to put it up on our social media because it can be really helpful to think about where you want to send your support and how you can best share the distress that you're feeling about a difficult situation that a friend or family member is dealing with. Our next piece of feedback comes from supposedly an Internet native and supposedly an Internet native had these thoughts about posting to social media and jacking someone's thread or comment. 
And I'm trying really hard not to use the phrase mommy jacking because I think that it's very limiting. Hi, Lizzie and Dan. Love the podcast, but not quite caught up yet. I'm actually currently listening to episode 160, where you talked about a question related to hijacking social media conversations and asked for listener input. My take is a little more cautious than yours. I feel as though social media conversations are about halfway between meat space conversations and halfway between forum posts, because although it is usually a social conversation between friends and acquaintances, it is guided by an original post made by the person the conversation revolves around. This is partly because the only person guaranteed to be a part of the conversation is the poster, and partly because the conversation need not happen in real time. Maybe it's because of the design of the website, and I'm picturing Facebook here, that labels original replies as comments. But it seems as though every reply should be directly related to the topic determined by the original post, and the side conversation should be as well. So the topic on that post about soda flavors was soda flavors, and commenters were encouraged to share, so the side conversation about local sodas was appropriate. However, on the baby post, the topic was not babies. It was, here, look at my baby. So the usual two-way street of a conversation would not apply, and it would not be appropriate at all to share a picture of your own baby. It's only appropriate to comment on the baby and ask questions about the baby, because it makes more sense to think of this as a forum post rather than a conversation. Hope that made some sense. (laughs) Supposedly an internet native. Oh, what wonderful, complicated online lives we lead. (laughs) I get what supposedly an internet native is talking about, though, that there are different types of posts that create different types of conversations. I think no matter what, you want to always be making sure that the conversation is focused around the original post and that if you want to share a picture of your baby just make your own post it's perfectly okay it's what this person did that you're reacting to go do it on your page if you want to comment on something outside of the realm of soda flavors but still related to the soda flavor conversation it might be useful and helpful to people within that conversation go for it i like it i like the the kind of parsing out of what is appropriate when on social media i love the attention to original purpose and meeting other people in the space that honors that original purpose. Internet Native, thank you for your comments. And thank you to everyone who send us thoughts and updates. Please do keep them coming. You can send your next comment or update to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com or leave us a message at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. It's time for our Postscript segment where we dive deeper into a topic of etiquette. And today's Postscript is the first part of a two-parter where we're going to rejoin Emily Post in 1922 as she describes the preparation and execution of a dinner party. And we joined the worldlies last time who have a lot of experience in this area. And today we're going to meet a younger couple, a newlywed couple that are preparing to host their first dinner party. And I'm going to – spoiler alert – tell everyone out there that things are going to go wrong and we're going to we're going to spend <laughs> the first part of our postscript with the preparation and then we're going to invite you to join us next week to hear how everything turns out. This section is titled so excuse me. So Emily is following up her tale in the 1922 edition um, and it can be found on page 179. This the the 
Emily is following up her tale of how a dinner is given in a great house with how a dinner can be bungled, and this is found on page one seventy nine of the nineteen twenty two edition of Emily Post's etiquette. How a dinner can be bungled. This is the contrasting picture to the dinner at the Worldlies, a picture to show you, particularly who are a bride, how awful an experiment in dinner giving can be. Let us suppose that you have a quite charming house, and that your wedding presents included everything necessary to set a well-appointed table. You have not very experienced servants, but they would all be good ones with a little more training. You have been at home for so few meals that you don't quite know how experienced they are. Your cook, at least, makes good coffee and eggs and toast for breakfast, and the few other meals she has cooked seem to be all right. And she is such a nice, clean person. So when your house is in order and the last pictures and curtains are hung, the impulse suddenly comes to you to give a dinner party. Your husband thinks it is a splendid idea. It merely remains to decide whom you will ask. You hesitate between a few of your own intimates or older people and decide it would be such fun to ask a few of the hostesses whose houses you have almost lived at ever since you came out. You decide to ask Mrs. Toplofty. Mr. Club Window, and the Worldlies, the Gildings, and the Kindhearts, and the Wellborns. With yourselves, that makes twelve. But that it will be safe to ask that number because a few are sure to regret. So you write notes since it is to be a formal dinner, and they all accept. You are a little worried about the size of the dining room, but you are overcome by the feeling of your popularity. Now the thing to do is to prepare for a dinner. The fact that Nora probably can't make fancy dishes does not bother you a bit. In your mind's eye, you see delicious plain food passed. You must get Sigrid a dress that properly fits her, and Delia, the chambermaid, who was engaged with the understanding that she was to serve in the dining room where there was company, has not yet been at the table, but. She is very willing, young person, who will surely look well. Nora, when you tell her who are coming, eagerly suggests the sort of menu that would appear at the table of the worldlies or the gildings. You are thrilled at the thought of your own kitchen producing the same. That it may be the same in name only does not occur to you. You order flowers for the table and candy for your four compotiers. You pick out your best tablecloth, but you find rather to your amazement that when the waitress asks you about setting the table, you have never noticed in detail how the places are laid. Knives and spoons go on the right of the plate, of course, and the forks are on the left. But which goes next to the plate, or whether the wine glasses should stand nearer or beyond the goblet, you can only guess. It is quite simple, however, to give directions in serving. You just tell the chambermaid that she is to follow the waitress and pass the sauces and the vegetables, and you have already explained carefully to the latter that she must not deal plates around the table like a pack of cards, or ever take them off in piles either. That much, at least, you do know. You also make it a point 
above everything that the silver must be very clean. Sigrid seems to understand, and with the optimism of youth, you approach the dinner hour without misgiving. The table, set with your wedding silver and glass, looks quite nice. You are a little worried about the silver. It does look rather yellow, but perhaps it's just a shadow. Then you notice there are a great many forks on the table. You ask your husband, what is the matter with the forks? He does not see anything wrong. You need them all for the dinner you ordered. How can there be less? So you straighten a candlestick that was out of line and put the place cards on. And we will find out what happens next. Next week. We like to end our show on a high note, so we turn to you to hear about the good etiquette you're seeing and experiencing out in the world, and that can come in so many forms. Today's comes from Anne. Dear Lizzie and Dan, I want to make an etiquette salute to the TSA agent and flight attendant at the Omaha airport, both of whom were helpful in making sure my poster made it safely to a work conference. The TSA agent quickly picked up my poster after it went through the x-ray machine so that it did not get crushed by other luggage, and the flight attendant let me hold onto my poster until everyone else had loaded items in the overhead compartment. Then she found a spot for it so that it wouldn't get shoved back to the back of the compartment. Although my poster was in a cardboard tube, it wasn't unbreakable, and I appreciate their thoughtfulness in making sure that it reached my destination in one piece with no mishaps. Those are both jobs that must take a lot of patience, and I greatly appreciate the kindness they showed towards me. Best, Anne. That is so nice when when folks are helpful during travel. I mean, they see so many thousands of people a day, and when they take the time to help you out, you really do feel amazing. The littlest things can make such a big difference, particularly when it's that important poster for work. I know just how Anne feels. <laughs> Thank you for listening. And thank you to everyone who sent us something. You can send us questions, comments, and salutes by email to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. Or leave us a message at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. On Twitter, I'm at Daniel underscore Post. And I'm at Lizzie A. Post. On Facebook, we're Awesome Etiquette and the Emily Post Institute. Help us out. Subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please consider leaving us a review. Our show is edited by the incredible Chris Albertine. Thank Thanks, you, Chris. Chris.